You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Leslie Stahl. This program originally aired in 2016. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today, NHPR and the Music Hall present Writers on a New England Stage with Leslie Stahl, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth. As a CBS News reporter and White House correspondent, Leslie Stahl covered Watergate, the Iran hostage crisis, and the Gulf War. Her investigative work for 60 Minutes brought her from America's nuclear mission control centers to Guantanamo Bay. She's interviewed heads of state, traumatized soldiers, Iraqi rebels, teenage gospel stars, and skillfully refereed pitch debates on Face the Nation. With a shelf full of Emmys and other awards and a few memorable scoops behind her, Leslie Stahl says becoming a grandmother is her best assignment yet. The birth of her first grandchild broke through the established professional veneer. She was jolted, walloped by the intensity of emotion. And like any good reporter, she wanted to find out why. Leslie Stahl joined us for Writers on a New England Stage to talk about her account of that transformation. Becoming Grandma, the Joy and Science of the New Grandparenting. And like the seasoned broadcaster that she is, when she stepped on stage at the music hall, Leslie Stahl knew her audience. Are you all grandmothers and grandfathers? My people, my people. So I had a friend, you'll appreciate this, who warned me not to write a book about being a grandmother. He was a man, he said to me, Don't do it. Don't tell everybody you're that old. (laughs) So when I started writing, I, I did it with great trepidation. But the more I got into it, the more I researched it, the more courage I had, especially when I found out that Mick Jagger is a great grandfather. (laughs) Eventually, I came to see that when we become grandmothers, we don't get older we get younger, far from retreating into grandmother dotage. We actually enter the age of the grandmother, which is going on right now. And it all starts with the numbers. Listen to this statistic I came upon. 30,000 new American grandparents in this country today every week. 30,000 every week. Most of the New grandparents today, obviously, are baby boomers. They're 50 to 70. And for the last 25 years, the boomer holy grail has been staying young. Boomers look young. Boomers dress young. Boomer grandparents, grandmothers particularly, do not have tightly permed gray hair. We're all blonde. (laughs) We're just all blonde. That's the way it is. And we are a bunch of very cool dudes, I've been told. I'm reading here. Um, Since boomers began to talk, they have determined our culture, our tastes, our music, our clothes, and now we are reinventing grandparenting. We have a whole new phase of life that we never had before. And when I say we, I mean human beings. We are going to live into our 90s and 100s. This is going to be called post-retirement, and we're going to have 30 years of it. And these are unplanned years, new years. 
No one talks about it. We have to start having the conversation about what we're going to do with all these extra years added onto our lives. And what I'm saying is that the best way to spend that new extra time is not sitting in front of a television set, being bored to death. I'm saying it. We need to spend it taking care of our grandchildren. They need us, and believe me, we need them. When we take care of our grandchildren, and this is documented in studies, we get healthier. It fends off dementia, and we certainly get happier. Now, the reason that I wanted to write this book in the first place is because the first time I held my first grandchild, I had such a thunderbolt of elation when I held her. I had such a deep, unexpected, amazingly full body feeling. Um, I was just blown away by what was happening to me. I didn't understand it. No matter how many times I heard the best thing that can ever happen to you is to be a grandmother, which I've always heard, I didn't, no one really talked to me about the physicality of holding your grandchild, a new, a, your new grandchild. I mean, I was literally blazing with a love that was unlike any other feeling I'd ever had. It was nothing like when I, I held my own child for the first time. This was new territory. And uh, when you're a mother or, or a father, your love is kind of burdened with a sense of responsibility and even fear. You're, you know, you're worried about taking care of the child. And in fact, a new mother has all these new hormones that are going through her that make her hypervigilant. So when I say fear, I really mean it. It's, you're, you're really uh, pumped to worry about the baby. A grandmother? Nope. First of all, she didn't give birth, so she's totally healthy. Uh, she's happy because holding that baby means everything in the world. And we, we're not worried because we're not suffused with those special hormones. Our love is pure. It is unfettered. It is unconditional. One of the mysterious things that happens when we become grandparents is that no matter how strict we were as parents, no matter how criticizing because mothers and fathers are on the, ca the case. Sit up straight, eat your vegetables. We are on their backs. Grandparents never do that. We, whatever's going on with us inside, the ability, the desire to criticize is gone. And the word no, we are, it's disabled. <laughs> we cannot use it. We can only say, yes, honey, yes, honey. Oh, you, you don't want one doll, you want three? Okay. You know, you just, I, I can't even go shopping with my granddaughter anymore. It's ridiculous. I come back, my daughter's furious at me. I'm Virginia Prescott. You're listening to a special edition of Word of Mouth with Leslie Stahl, recorded live at the Music Hall for Writers on a New England Stage. Now, I myself had one of those really tough, criticizing mothers. Uh, she wanted me to have my career. And I couldn't be on television without getting the phone call about my hair. I remember one, she said, where did you get that 
dress. Can't you go out and buy something that looks good? But as tough as she was with me, my daughter was born and she did what I did. She turned into a marshmallow. She was permissive and indulgent and she'd get this soft grandmother gaze on her face. It was stunning to behold. Now, as I just said, my mother was devoted to my career. She wanted me to have it. I think she was very bored in the suburbs, and didn't want me to have that same experience because she didn't work. Uh, she used to say to me, no job, it has to be a career. And uh, this is one, I'm gonna tell you one story. Otherwise, I'm gonna talk about the book, but this is one story about my career, early, early days. Um, they hired me, and CBS News hired me in 1972, and affirmative action had just come into force. They had hired a couple of women and a couple of minorities, and the door was opening. It was great. Uh, affirmative action was really popular in the early 70s, and businesses, particularly businesses with on television, wanted to show the public that they had hired minorities and women. About two weeks after I was hired and moved to Washington from Boston, this burglary took place at the Watergate. <laughs> and nobody, nobody thought it was a big deal. They thought it was a local Washington, D.C. break-in. And I was the newest person. And they said, let's send Leslie, because it was the Democratic Party headquarters that were broken into. Um, but let's send the new girl, because it wasn't, no one thought it was a big deal. And in the early days of the story, the arraignment of the burglars, I was one of two reporters in the courtroom. Guess who the other reporter was? Bob Woodward. And every time the story would die, because it went on and on and on, Watergate, but there were these long, dormant periods. He would call me up and say, don't get off this story. Don't let them take it away from you. Insist that you keep looking into it every day. Hold on to it. Well, clearly the best advice I ever got. So finally, it was so big that the Senate held hearings every day. And I can tell by your blonde hair <laughs> that you all watched. As, and um, virtually every night, weeknight, CBS News did a special because the hearings were on during the day and they would do kind of reprieve a little of the, the highlights at night and then there would be 10 minutes of analysis by the correspondents. And the, there was always a panel of three and there'd be two men, you know, the White House correspondent, Dan Rather, and the Hill correspondent or the Justice correspondent, but I was always there every night just to show that they had a girl and, uh, but the men loved to argue with each other. So I, I never got to talk. They'd be arguing and I would say, but don't you think, well, wait a minute, I disagree. I never got to talk. So after one full week of this, the boss calls us in and says, you know, the public thinks you're being rude to Leslie. Uh, it, you're not letting her talk, and we're getting mail and telexes. Remember telexes? And uh, 
if you don't let her talk tonight, we're just not going to do this anymore. And the, everybody loved doing analysis. So the show starts. And the first, we had a moderator. His first question was something like, so folks, what's the gossip about John Ehrlichman? And I hear the word gossip. And I say to myself, you know, you shouldn't be gossiping. Let one of the guys gossip. But they know I have to talk. So I'm sitting there. And they're sitting there. No one is saying a word. It is excruciating, obviously, to watch dead air. And it's embarrassing. And so Daniel Shore jumps into this horrible vacuum. And he says something like, well, you want gossip? We have a woman here. Yeah. So I obviously have to talk. I'm so flustered by this and so angry, I, I make no sense. I make no, I forget what, I, what the question was. So John Ehrlichman, he's gone. And I, I really, I've read the transcript. I am zigging and zagging and I'm not parsing and ooh. I, it ends mercifully. And I ran upstairs and I called home. My dad answered and uh, I said, Daddy, please help me write my letter of resignation. I was a disaster. I can never be seen anywhere I'm going home. I'm getting in my closet. I'm shutting the door. And, and my dad said, are you kidding? You were great. You were fabulous. And you're smarter than the guy. And on and on. And I said, Daddy, if you cannot be honest with me, put mother on the phone. <laughs> and my father said, mother can't talk right now. She's too upset. <laughs> Now that woman, that woman turned into such a softy with my daughter. And when I would tell my daughter that Dolly, that was, everybody called my mother Dolly, was her name. I used to tell her that Dolly was tough on me. She looked at me like I was crazy, you know. Anyway, in writing the book, I found out that a lot of us grandparents today are walking on eggshells. We know that when our children have that baby or those babies, that there is a sudden shift of power in the family. They hold the keys to those babies. <laughs> we want those babies. <laughs> we are biting our tongues. We are ingratiating ourselves. And we are sucking up to the daughter-in-law, <laughs> big time. So I think with this extra time we're going to have on our hands when we're all 100, um, I feel after writing the book and researching it um, that it's important for the whole family that we, in some way, reconstitute the multi-generational family. And even if it isn't your own grandchild, surrogate grandparenting is almost as healthy and wonderful. When we don't see our grandchildren, we crave them physically. When we do take care of our grandchildren, studies show, as I said before, that we do get healthier. These are studies and happier. Holding a baby 
who is your baby's baby, is life-affirming, a grandparent crawls into a vat of joy, and here is the ultimate kicker. They love us back unconditionally, too. She may be the face I can't forget, the trace of pleasure or regret. I'm Virginia Prescott, and this is Writers on a New England Stage with Leslie Stahl, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth, a co-production of NHPR and the Music Hall. In the early years of her career, Leslie Stahl was one of few women in network television news. It was the 1970s when unprecedented numbers of women, often mothers, started working outside of the home. That generation changed the American workplace, economy, and family structures. In her book, Becoming Grandma, Leslie Stahl observes that working couples of that era had few models for parenting. They were the vanguard then and now have the resources and the vitality to transform the traditional role of grandparent. Leslie Stahl joined me on stage at the Music Hall to talk about that evolution. In the course of researching her book, she spoke to several scientists and doctors, one of whom talked to her about the biological response that grandparents, especially grandmothers, have to babies. They experience the same flood of bonding hormones as new mothers. I asked her why that happens. The purpose, I suppose, when you, when you talk in terms of Darwinian survival, is that we commit ourselves to these children because when we hold them, we secrete the bonding hormone called oxytocin. We actually secrete it. Mothers do too, and much more than grandmothers, uh, but we do secrete this hormone and our brains are a little rewired and we are physically connected to them and that's actually what I was experiencing. Um, And I did want to write the book partly to find out what it was but also to find out if it was just me, you know, is this just something I'm experiencing or is is it what all grandmothers feel and it's basically what all grandmothers go through. Grandfathers also are connected, but it's different physiologically. And usually grandparents told me, the ones I interviewed, grandfathers told me that their really strong connection comes a little later when the baby really starts, you know, communicating a little more. But grandfathers are in some ways even more goofy in love, you know, they're the grandfather who was running a company is now having a little tea party playing dolls with his granddaughter. I mean, that, that's pretty common, pretty common. And you approach this like a 60-minute assignment, uh, as you put it. And, but we get to see a side of you that we don't generally see on television. As you said, you turn into a mush ball. Total mush well, ball. I'm wondering how your experience of being a grandmother, a working grandmother, was different than being a working mother. Well, I think I was like a most working mothers, um, and, and as I said before, this, this sense of responsibility is so overriding. Um, I was always making lists as a mother, uh, making sure I wasn't dropping a stitch, 
making sure that someone did pick her up and drove her to her next event. I kept her so busy so she wouldn't notice I wasn't there, the poor kid. She's still complaining, you know, <laughs> that there was no time to just play. Um, we, we have different roles and different functions. The mother role is to get our children ready to be good citizens, get them ready for life, get them ready to have their own children and establish their own families, get them educated. Grandparents have a different function, and ours is much more fun. And it is, it's much more fun, it's meant to be more fun. Uh, someone said to me, parents are police, grandparents are playmates. And there's a lot of truth to that. So I think that, that there's no, that we're very different. It gets a little inverted <clears throat> when a grandparent is the, the primary caretaker. If a grandparent has custody, or if they are granny nannies and they are taking care of the child four or five days a week while the parents are working, and if it's a single parent particularly, then the grandparents take on the disciplinarian role and the parents become the permissive one. I saw that quite a bit in cases where the grandparents really step in full time. You write in the book about something that I've heard from a lot of women that seeing their mother with their children, it's, they don't recognize who she is. She's a much different, let's say, caregiver than she was with, their, with them. Right, and I think that in a lot of cases, the, the mother-daughter relationship improves because young mothers love, well, young mothers like anybody who think their child is perfect. <laughs> and uh, grandmother's going to do that, naturally. And so the bond is greater and improved if you didn't have a good relationship. And if you did have a good relationship, it even gets better. You also spoke to a lot of women who were successful, professional women, who, the pioneers, really, the, the first women who were out there in the workforce, and also some who had some regrets. Whoopi Goldberg comes to mind, a conversation that you had with her. She actually, when her career was taking off, she let her mother take care of her daughter and felt like that there was some regret, you know, when she was talking about it, saying, no, I shouldn't have done that. I should stay with my daughter, but I knew it was my time. And I'm wondering if grandparenting can be a kind of redemptive experience, if they're atoning in some way. I think a lot of working women today, and I'm, I'm in this category, there's two sides to it. One, you're, ma you're making up, in your relationship with your grandchildren, you're making up uh, with your children for all the t times you weren't there for them. But you're also making up for yourself what you missed. Because if you're working and you have a full-time job, um, you missed a lot by definition. And uh, so you're both making it up to your daughter and giving yourself a second chance to watch a baby grow up, to be part of a baby's growing up. What did, what did you miss? Oh gosh, I missed side. a lot of stupid soccer games. <laughs> my daughter, believe this, my daughter played football. She was on the junior varsity football team. And I only went to one game. 
that was one too many, but that's beside the point. But I, I missed a lot. I missed her being in plays, and I, I missed a lot. You know, I was covering the White House at the time. And if, when you cover the White House, whatever the president is doing, you have to do. You have no choice. And presidents can go on trips, uh, unplanned trips. They can suddenly decide they want to go to Mississippi, or in my case, in one, at one point, Jimmy Carter said he was going to go to a funeral in Japan. He made the decision in the morning, and we were on the plane in the afternoon. I mean, these kinds of things happen. In my case, <clears throat> my husband, who's a writer, um, worked at home. So he was there. I, I, to write the book, I asked my daughter how much she missed me, you know, not being around a lot. And she said, well, Dad was always there. Um, she, she, she doesn't resent it, but in some cases I could see how a kid might. I'm Virginia Prescott, and you're listening to Leslie Stahl, recorded live at the Music Hall for Writers on a New England Stage. In your previous book you wrote, uh, the book is called Reporting Live, and I think it was 99, you called yourself a member of the class of 1972. You know, this is the, the group that was brought in after the FCC mandate for affirmative action. Exactly. Did you feel like a placeholder at that time? Um, well, what happened at CBS, and I think this was probably true in many other professions and many other journalistic outfits, was that the young people were hired as apprentices. We, we were not called correspondents. We were called reporters. We, have a diff we had a different rank, different salary, and um, we, were, we, were, we weren't trained by the senior correspondents, but we traveled with them. We covered the same stories as they did, and we watched how they did their job. And we were brought along as an apprentice would be. And it was very smart because we didn't, we, we weren't thrown in sink or swim. We got to, if we were going to make mistakes, we made them on radio. And uh, we just, you know, we were brought along. Uh, it, it, they don't do that anymore. And that's too bad. Uh, so to answer your question, we knew our place. The correspondents all had offices. And we had little baby desks, I'm not kidding, children's desks out in the hallways. So in case we ever thought that we weren't a second-class citizen, those desks proved it. But I, we knew we weren't ready for prime time. We knew it. And the, the other benefit of that kind of a system is that we really did earn a promotion. We, we weren't given it. People the other correspondents didn't resent it, us, because of affirmative action, because we were brought along slowly. And if we didn't make the grade, we, we didn't stay. Uh, so it was a very good system at the time. Well, there are a number of questions here about um, being a part of this predominantly male profession. And I'm thinking specifically, as a mother, you know, what is it like to be up there with all these giants of American broadcasting and say, oh, I, I need to have time off, my daughter's sick, or, you know, I have to go to a play? Mm -hmm. um, I don't remember, this is going to sound really awful, but I don't remember ever feeling, oh, here I am amidst all these giants. I, I didn't feel that way. I, I always felt that my bosses 
all along the way wanted me to succeed. They didn't hire me to fall flat on my face. And if I wasn't doing a good job, I always knew it was me who wasn't doing a good job. It wasn't because I was a woman or it was just that I wasn't working hard enough or whatever. Um, and as, as far as taking off to take care of my child because she was sick, um, I, I, first of all, my daughter was never sick. That's really the truth. I have the most incredibly wonderful kid, it's true. Um, but but I, I just did it. You had to. I mean, you, you had to keep your priorities straight. Um, and I just had wonderful bosses all along the way who, you know, you got to go take care of your child. So I, I, I've had a pretty nice run, I have to say. <laughs> well, you were really a pioneer in the workplace. And do you feel like you are, again, pioneering a role as a 21st century grandparent? I mean, there really are no mo role models for that. I do. I, I well, I don't. I I don't think. Oh my goodness, Leslie, you're a pioneer. No, and I didn't think that when I started uh, at sixty at CBS either. I mean, you you never think of yourself that way. You're just in the war, you know, and you've got your battle gear on, and your your eye is right in front of you, and you've got a job to do, and wanting to succeed. I've often been asked, did you feel, you know, that you were representing all women? And uh, no, I didn't. I was just trying, they didn't say sink or swim, but believe me, I felt that it was sink or swim. And so I was working almost myopically on trying to become a journalist. Um, and I think in a way, I, I'm that way as a grandmother too. However, I did write this book. And that does kind of say, which I hope the message is, <clears throat> um, Stop trying to say that grandmothers are little old ladies who are in the kitchen baking chocolate chip cookies because our generation isn't. Our generation went to college. Our generation went to graduate school. Our generation um, are women who started in the workforce and are still in the workforce. Um, we're different people and we're grandmothers. We're both. And maybe a little bit getting back into the balance of life issues if you're a grandmother. And so you're being thrust backward a little bit. <clears throat> How am I going to see my grandchildren and keep this job? You're right back where you started. Um, so I hope the, the message of the book is um, that we are different today. And, uh, and we do have more. Um, it is, I, I, I do think this is the age of the grandmother. I think Hillary's the, the poster girl, whether she becomes president or not. And uh, you're going to see, because I kept reading about this, <clears throat> that um, clothing designers are using older women uh, to promote their products now. No, Joan uh, Didion in the Joan Selena Didion is. in her 80s is representing... Celine. Who? Celine. Celine. Mm -hmm. And other older actresses are representing other clothing lines and cosmetic lines. Um, and you know, I mentioned Mick Jagger. I, I can't count up the number of rock groups and famous singers like Paul Simon who are still out there. I've seen them 
and they're still wearing those little tiny skinny pants and they're jumping all over the stage. And they're great grandfathers, just what I said. So, I mean, life is different than it used to be. I'm Virginia Prescott, and this is Writers on a New England Stage with Leslie Stahl, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth, a co-production of NHPR and the Music Hall. Leslie Stahl's broadcast resume includes covering the White House, moderating Face the Nation, and correspondent for 60 Minutes. She's built a career on asking tough questions of newsmakers, from Boris Yeltsin to Yasser Arafat to French President Nicolas Sarkozy, who walked out when Stahl pressed him about his relationship with his soon-to-be-estranged wife. Leslie Stahl doesn't comment on that in her book, Becoming Grandma, but she does write about what she calls the most difficult interview she's ever conducted. Let's return to my conversation with Leslie Stahl on stage at the Music Hall in Portsmouth. Question here from the audience about how you share grandparenting with your in-laws, and it's a really interesting part in the book where you have a conversation with your daughter's in-laws, Andrew's parents, or Andrew's mother, rather, um, you have means. They don't have means. They, to, let, to, let's say, travel back and forth to California all the time. And there's some resentment there. You said it was the most difficult interview you've ever done. And I'm thinking, really? Worse than Nicholas Sarkozy walking out on you halfway through when you asked about his wife? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Why? Why was it so hard? So... Um... I was told, and of course we all live this, that there is a built-in competition between the two sets of grandparents. Today it's kind of four sets of grandparents, but that's, we'll, we'll put that aside for the moment. Um, <clears throat> you know, you don't want to go there, but you're thinking, oh, does a little kid like them more than he or she likes us? Um, do they see the babies more than we do? Uh, you don't want to go there, but, and, and, and this happens whether you like those people or you don't like those people, it's just up there. And uh, I, I really like my son-in-law's parents, but we weren't close. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't want to interview them. I didn't want to talk to them. It was, it was awkward. And I gave my book, the first draft, to my boss to read. And he said, well, you never mentioned the other grandparents. You can't do that. You're writing a book. You're talking about yourself. You have to. And he said, why don't you call them up? And I thought, oh, my God, it's going to be so hard and so awkward. But I did it. And I reached uh, my, my grandchildren's other grandmother on the phone. And I said, the first question was, do you think it's harder being the mother of the boy, the, the father, the, in other words, the paternal grandmother? And she said, yes. And I said, why do you say that? And she said, well, what she said was something like, well, a girl always stays close to her mother, but a boy doesn't always, and it can be difficult. And uh, then I said, do you resent us? long pause. <laughs> and then she said yes. And then she told me why. So I'm going to make you read the book to find out why. <laughs> but 
But I will tell you, which I don't say in the book, um, that one, this was maybe the most difficult conversation, not just for the book, I mean ever. It was really hard. Two, which I don't say in the book, is that our relationship is so great now. The airing of this, the getting it on the table, the candor on her part, uh, just completely brought us together. And now I love this woman, and we just spent time together. We had never done that uh, with our grandchildren together. Um, so if you're having any kind of tension, I recommend a conversation. And it's hard, but I recommend it. Now, I run into a lot of people um, who say, I love uh, the other grandparents. We are close. We even travel together. One um, pair of women I've met on this book tour that I'm on came up for me to sign a book. And they came up together, and they told me they loved each other, and that while their children went on a honeymoon, they went on a granny moon. <laughs> and the two women went off and took a trip together, and they had such a good time, they've done it every year. A granny moon. Do you love it? I love it. Well, the experience of grandparenting is, is different for a lot of people. And as you were talking about in your talk, the idea that you know, some people don't get to see their grandchildren. Here in America, one in 10 grandparents is what they call a custodial grandparent, have custody of their, their grandchildren. And 18% of those are living below the poverty line. My thing was only 18% are below the poverty line because I think there's a, an impression that grandmothers who are raising their grandchildren are, are inner city women. Mm -hmm. And it's not true. It's only 18%. Well, I just spoke with a writer who went across the country. By the way, his name is Rinker Buck, and he's coming to the loft. Um, he is fantastic. But he was saying that he traveled across America, and he, he said there is a generation of kids who are not being raised by their parents. You know, their parents are in jail, mental illness, the opioid crisis, addiction. Can grandparents take the place of parents? Probably not fully, but they can go a long way because they love those babies. They just love them. And that's the most important part of raising a child is to show them um, that you think they're wonderful. Uh, what I did come upon I came upon two situations of custodial grandparents. There's this incredible building in the Bronx in one of the worst neighborhoods in the country. And the city of New York built a grandparent building for grandparents who are raising the children for the reasons, the very reasons you said. They're mainly women. Uh, there are grandmothers and great-grandmothers who have custody of little kids and then teenagers and so forth. The city provides all kinds of services for the grandparents and for the children that kids are tutored, the, uh, ed, the building management uh, gets the report cards, and if a kid isn't doing well, the management gets them extra help. The grandmothers are given uh, classes, education, and how to talk to a teenager who realizes probably not until he's about 13, 14. Oh, my parents rejected me, you know, and then they become very surly and difficult, and grandparents are helped and tutored along. It's fantastic. 
The other side are all the grandparents who have custody with no help. They, they are not living in a building. They're living in their house, and they're raising children, and they're exhausted, and their dreams of retirement are shattered, you know. They thought, I'm going to travel with my wife, and we're going to have fun and whatever. We're going to go on cruises. And now they're raising a baby or a teenager. And they are having a hell of a difficult time. Uh, I spoke to a psychologist who sees some of these custodial grandparents as clients or patients, and uh, she said to me, they are unsung heroes because they are amongst us, and nobody knows how difficult it is and what they're going through. Mm -hmm. But as you say, it's a, it's a huge number, and they're in all our communities. And it's not just because of drug abuse or neglect of their children. I mean, it, the recession has brought a lot of this on. And the uh, wars in the Middle East have brought a lot of this on. You're listening to a special edition of Word of Mouth with Leslie Stahl, recorded live at the Music Hall for writers on a New England stage. There was another uh, place that you visited. It's called Hope Meadows, which just sounds like oh, an amazing wow. place. Um, you know, through force of will, this one doctor... Uh, I think it was a converted, wasn't it an army base, a former army base that they turned into apartments originally just for foster kids and their parent, their new foster parents, and it kind of organically grew into this grandparenting kind of pairing. So, so what happens there? Tell us a story I'll about that. I'll tell you that. the story. It's so fabulous. There was a woman who was writing her PhD thesis on the foster care system in Illinois, and she was just heartsick and appalled at how many children are turned back. So a foster family will take them and then reject them. And then the next family takes them and rejects them over and over. And she couldn't stand it. She said, there has to be a better way to do this. And she said, what if uh, the foster parents lived together in a community? And if the, the parents were just at the end of their rope, the other parents would come in and support them and help. And she was determined that she was going to have this as an experiment. So she wanted to have, find 12 couples who would not take these children as foster children, but adopt them. And she would find them housing so that they could live together. And she found out about this Air Force Base, Rantoul Air Force Base, that was closing. She went to the Pentagon. She said, I need 12 houses. You're closing this base. The homes are beautiful. Not apartments, they're gorgeous homes, the officer's area. And, uh, and it looked very suburban. She said, I want 12 houses. They said, no, no, we can't, uh, the Pentagon can't be dealing in 12 houses. I mean, that's ridiculous. We're the Pentagon. She nagged them. She made 1,000 phone calls to the Pentagon. <laughs> they finally, to get rid of her, <clears throat> said, you can have a subdivision. She said, how many houses? 88 houses. Take it or leave it. She got 88 gorgeous houses for $250,000. How can you say no? So now she has 12 families and 88 houses. <laughs> she put some of the houses to, uh, together. Uh, they, they, were, they were attached houses, so she just broke through because a lot of these families took families, so they were taking four siblings or five siblings and adopting them. 
raising them for life. Now she had something like 70 houses. What was she going to do with that? So she decided that she would uh, invite retired senior citizens who didn't want to live in their big houses anymore to come and live there with subsidized rent in the smaller attached houses. <clears throat> so now she has this community with these senior citizens living in among these foster, well, these adoptive families with mainly troubled kids, mainly troubled kids. And as you said, organically, the, these senior citizens became the grandparents. Organically, the kids started to call this one grandma and that one grandpa, and it just developed. And the grandparents are helping these parents hold on to the kids. It's the grandparents that are holding the families together. Uh, and it is a, a fantastic experiment, and now it's being duplicated all around the country. And the, this was the original one. It's 20 years old. There's this beautiful detail, like these kids get so used to being around old people that even when they go to other towns, if they see a, a person with blonde hair, they'll go and give them a hug. <laughs> Call <a> grandma. <laughs> well, you know, you were told, Leslie, that you wouldn't last past 40 in TV, because right. that's how it goes in TV, but you are still at it, you're still raising your granddaughters, and you know, you missed a lot of things, you made sacrifices, but I'm wondering if... Do you think that you would be as gratified and, and happy about being a grandmother had you not made the career that you made for yourself? You never know. You never know. Um, I, I actually, I, let me amend that. I did interview a lot of grandparent, grandparents, a lot of grandmothers, and I think I'm in a community. I don't think I'm off by myself because I had a great career. I think that it, having a grandchild is a whole new life, a whole new direction, a whole new chapter, and it makes us just happy. And I'm not talking about uh, you know, kind of tragic situations where the baby's sick or something isn't quite right, but for the vast majority of women and men who become grandparents, it is joyous. And uh, whether you worked or didn't work, uh, whether you had a career or a job, as my mother would say, <clears throat> this chapter, this chapter is just so gratifying and wonderful, and those kids bring us such uh, fulfillment, and uh, I don't know, the, the, the future just opens up in a whole new way, that I don't think my working or not working had anything to do with this. What do your grandchildren call you, Lolly? They call me Lolly. Okay. And when I decided to be Lolly, my husband said, "Okay, I'm Pop. We're Lollipop." <laughs> so can we thank Lolly together, please? Thank you. Thank you. Leslie Stahl there, she spent more than 40 years as a journalist and is now the author of Becoming Grandma, The Joy and Science of the New Grandparenting. 
Our conversation was recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth for Writers on a New England Stage, a co-production of New Hampshire Public Radio and the Music Hall in Portsmouth. The executive producer and live stage presentation director is Patricia Lynch. NHPR's president is Betsy Gardella. The Music Hall producer and communication director is Margaret Talcott. NHPR's broadcast producers for this event are Logan Shannon and Molly Donahue. The Music Hall production manager is Jana Morris. The live sound and recording and mixing engineer is Noah LaFay. Music director and band, Bob Lord and Dreadnought. Photos from the event are posted at Clear Eye Photo. Our broadcast sponsor for this event is Heinemann. You can see photos and listen to more author interviews from the series at wordofmouthradio.org. Just click on the Writers on a New England Stage link. I'm Virginia Prescott, and this is a special broadcast of Word of Mouth from NHPR. Boom, 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 boom. Crazy